Today I want to preach on just verse 4. Because God has given us so much in just one verse. Um, there's so many important takeaways here. I think you'll see why as we dig in. Uh, with much to cover, I'd, I'd like just to do that now. Let's read the verse together. 1 John chapter 4, verse 4. Little children, you are from God, and you have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Pray with me. Lord, we thank you for your written word. I am sorry for the many ways that we make light of it. In, in all the ways that we downgrade it, set it aside, stay busy with temporal things, entertainment and news and gossip and money making and sporting games. You, the living God, have given us your revelation in writing. And it is good. And it is a blessing. And we need it. Oh, how we need it to shape our thinking, to, to correct our, our futile perspective, our, our jaded fleshly response to a world that's coming at us left and right, the bodies that are breaking down and minds that are conflated and idols being pressed in front of us left and right. We need you. We need you and nothing else. So use this word this morning through the power of the Holy Spirit through your work in me to attempt to preach clearly and faithfully that, that lives would be changed because your word landed and took root and moved and solidified and corrected and mobilized. Do your work in us, Lord. We love you. And we thank you. In the mighty name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. It's great to see so many here today. Love you dearly. Let's jump in. Once again, John addresses his audience as little children. If you're just joining us, that might sound a little odd. It's for a man to speak to other adults in such a way. But it's important that we understand we, how John's using this reference to his audience. This is a way for him to share his affection for his blood-bought family in Christ. And it's also a way for him to flex properly his authoritative position over the sheep as a shepherd. He is not trying to belittle them or demean them. He loves them. He's caring for them well in writing this letter and bringing forth these truths. Little children, he says, you are from God. Do you remember uh, the point I made last week that the English word from here is a translation of the Greek word of and so maybe a better, maybe a more meaningful way we could read this, going back to the original manuscripts, would be to say, understand that he's saying, little children, you are of God. To be of God is to belong to Him, now and forever. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4 and 5, In love He predestined us for adoption as sons, through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will. Our adoption as sons through Jesus means we formally, legally, and completely become a member of His eternal family. It means we belong to Him. It means we are of God now. For we have been reconciled to Him through the finished work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. 
Our salvation and our adoption means we are brought into God's favor, into His blessing. And we now get to enjoy a restored relationship with Him forever as objects of His electing love and His saving grace. Church, we are heirs of His glory, residents of His eternal kingdom. We are of God. Think about this with me. Don't miss this. The God of the universe, the ruler of all things, the great and mighty I Am, is our Father. If we belong to Jesus Christ, and we are His beloved kids of grace. We belong to God in a way, church, that cannot be undone. We are His. We are secure in Him. We are of God. Understand the essence of Christianity is to belong to Him. We are now and forever secure in His mighty grip. And so when you are thinking you have no sure footing, when you are thinking it's about to all be lost, when you are thinking everything seems to be askew, everything seems to be lies and wrong and and broken, and to know you are of God is essential. To know it. Peter said in 1 Peter 1, 3-5, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Amen? What does it mean to be secure? And by whose power are we secure? Peter says, by God's power we are being guarded. There is no hole or flaw or back door if we are guarded by God. Paul says in Colossians 3, 1-4, Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. This, this is Paul's way of saying here, What John is saying, that we are of God. And we're not to be conflated, we're not to be undone, we're not to be lost at sea in the midst of the temporal, in the midst of the happenings of this day. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. Hidden here means kept from anyone that might try to take us out. We're hidden with Christ and God. That means we are absolutely secure. Nothing in all of history, of all of creation, is more secure than that which is secured by the omnipotent hand of God. That's you, Christian. You think about incredible security and it doesn't hold the candle to the security that you know in Christ by the power of God. Do you know, do you get the meat, the power of what it means to be of God?
Who's going to break in and take you from God's grip? Who's going to steal what the Almighty God has claimed as His own and secured? No one. Nothing. Not even Satan. And so that is good news to our soul. Christians, you really know the wonder and the power and the goodness of what it means that you are of God. You need to, for it is who you are in Christ. And it sets the table for what John is about to drive home next. Look with me. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. Christian, you have overcome them. The key to understanding this is to know who is he referencing when he says them. The answer is those who will be studied in the last few verses. And in the context of this letter, they are the false prophets. They are the ones who are of the world. They are the ones who represent the spirit of the Antichrist. They are the ones who have lied and deceived and promoted false gospels. John says something really important here. He says, we have overcome them. What does it mean that we have overcome those who lie and look to deceive and hurt us? Because if we're honest, there are many days on this sin-filled rock that it, we may only feel like the world and Satan's cronies and fleshly people are overcoming us. World leaders are using armies to attack people and homes and cities and families. To blow them up. Our own government is endorsing systems of belief and policies that are harmful for our our people our families, our livelihoods. Our employers never seem to let up. They they don't justly honor the work that we've done, often make it harder. Our friends, our family could be outright mean and hurtful. So what does it mean that we've overcome them? How do we fight this feeling that it feels like everything's overcoming us? We've overcome them. That sounds pretty conclusive. That that doesn't sound like it's happening. It sounds like it's done. Little children, you are from God. You are of God and have overcome them. To understand what John means here, we, we need to just go to the rest of God's holy revelation, His holy word, and all that it tells us about who we are in Christ and who we are of God. It's why understanding who we are of God is so key to preceding this statement. Paul speaks so well to this in Colossians 2, 13-15. He says, You who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, you were dead. You were guilty. God made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. He has set this, He set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Him. Much good and helpful clarity is here. A few points to make. Paul speaks here of how we have overcome our spiritual death. This is not small. We were dead in our trespasses and the uncircumcision of our flesh. God made us alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. We are forgiven all your worst, darkest, grossest stuff in Christ is forgiven. 
It's not kind of forgiven. It is forgiven. All our sin, past, present, future sin, is forgiven for those who are in Christ. For those who are of God. How? Verse 14, by canceling the record of death that stood against us with its legal demands, he set it aside, nailing it to the cross. What else was nailed to the cross besides Jesus himself? The sign that hung above Jesus' head that read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. I like this quote from Frederick Bruce. He says, by his cross... He releases his people not only from the guilt of sin, but also from its hold over them. What the metaphor of verse 14 says is that Jesus took the damning indictment and nailed it to his cross, presumably as an act of triumph, defiance in the face of those blackmailing powers that were holding it over men and women as a means of commanding their allegiance. If there's an analogy here, it may lie in the fact that Jesus' own accusation, King of the Jews, was fixed to his cross, just as his own indictment was fastened there, says Paul. So he takes the indictment drawn up against the people and nails it to his cross. His victorious passion sets them free from their bankruptcy and bondage. We have to understand the weight of our guilt has been wiped away in the perfect blood of Christ. The legal demands have been met. We have to understand the weight of it because the defining foundation of our embrace of the victory of Christ is the security we have in Him. Daniel 12.2, he says... We will arise, some to eternal life and some to eternal death. Those who are cursed will live forever in torment. Those who are blessed will live together forever with Jesus. Those who are saved by Christ, those who are of God, have overcome in the greatest way one can overcome. In Christ we experience the victory of all victories. And how lightly we take the eternal victory too often for the sake of the temporary. Church, never should we wake up in the victory that we have in Christ and not utterly and overwhelmingly praise the Lord for His saving grace in our life and then live that day to share this life-transforming good news with everyone we encounter. Don't bathe in the wallow of your struggle or your suffering or, or, your, or your persecution. Bathe and announce the victory you have in Jesus. Paul rejoices in 1 Corinthians 15, 54-57. Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Two ways we must understand our victory in Christ when it comes to death. We who are spiritually alive in Christ will not experience spiritual death. Number two, when the saved physically die and we experience physical death, the sting of death is lessened in the reality that this was not our end. But instead, a new beginning of life with Christ without sin and pain is just beginning. Paul said it best, to live is Christ and to die is gain. I'm getting bolder among my Motorcycle club brothers who have fallen in love with a statement that it's better to be seen than viewed. Right? That's, that's just one of those popular things we like to say. Meaning, it's kind of their way of saying, like, good to be alive today. I'm not in the grave. You're not viewing me. You're seeing me. I'm still here. Okay, yeah, it's good to celebrate. God's given us a new day. That's good. But what about to live as Christ and to die as gain? 
I kind of want to say, Lord, come Jesus. I'm excited about the day I get to get viewed because that means I'm with you. That day will be better for me. Right? Physical death is still our enemy. Scripture is clear to say that. It still stings. It's still very hard. We still mourn the absence of people we love. But in Christ, we have joy in the morning. Psalm 35, weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. Amen. Is that loved one still dead in the morning? Yeah, very much so. But there's a joy we have in Christ. There's a joy we have in the reality of who we are in victory. That we know God, that we're of God. Look with me at the part of this passage that made me think of it when we read our passage today when John says that we have overcome them. Verse 15, Colossians 2.15 He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Him. Paul, Paul's point here is huge. We are victorious in Christ while the battle continues, the war is won in Christ. And all those who are in Christ, all those who are of God, have overcome our enemies. Now under God's providence, Scripture tells us that demons and secular authorities are still given run of this world in this time. The Bible says they prowl like a roaring lion looking to devour. That means their wicked work and effect is still real. It is still harsh. The consequences that we're surrounded by are still real. But because of our victory in Jesus, we have overcome them, which means they cannot overcome us. We need to never lose sight of the significance of our victory Jesus claimed for us. Because it reminds us that we have indeed overcome. And while we may suffer, and while one day we will physically die, we still win. We still belong to God. They can have our bodies, but they can't have our souls. Jesus said in Matthew 10, 28, Do not fear those who can kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear Him who can destroy both the soul and the body in hell. God alone who reigns over all things is the only one we should fear. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4, 7-12, We have this treasure treasure of the gospel, the treasure of Christ, the glory of God, belonging, knowing Him. We have that treasure. We have it in jars of clay. That means we're not a big deal. That means we're really frail. Broken, breaking down all the time. We have it, this treasure in jars of clay to show the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Paul really got that. And I want so many more of us to get it better than we do. He got it to such a degree that Paul went so far to say, give me more so more of God's glory is seen in me. Less temporal success, less physical victory. Bring on the reality of all the hardship so that God is glorified. He's celebrating our broken downness, our frailty, 
so that God is glorified. In our weakness, he's stronger, Scripture says. He goes on, he says, we are afflicted in every way, but we're not crushed. Why? Because we've overcome. Because we're victorious. We're perplexed, but we're not driven to despair. Because our hope's not in the temporal, it's in him. persecuted but not forsaken we're struck down but we're not destroyed always carrying in the body of death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may be manifest in our bodies for we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus sake so that the life of Jesus may also be manifest in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Christian, hear me so clearly today. We who are spiritually alive in Christ do not fear physical death because something so much greater awaits us. Don't ever diminish that. Don't just agree in your head because Sunday school has taught you to do so. Let it be true to your core, your spirit, your heart, that you are comforted by it. That you can be truly at peace and and even rejoice in it. We only rightly fear God, for we know that He is the one who holds all things together and is worthy of our respect and our awe and our obedience. We worship God, for He was not obligated to save us, but by His grace He did. We trust God, for we know that He has us in His sovereign grip and will not... Use even our, and He will use even our worst times in this life for our great good. We can do this because of what Christ accomplished on the cross. Finished. He defeated our foes. And if God is for us, who can be against us? We have overcome them. Another great clarity of this truth is found in Paul's words to the Romans in chapter 8. Let it wash over you fresh this morning. Romans 8, 28-39, Paul says, We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn Christ is the one who died, more than that, the one who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we're being killed all day long. 
we are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Since God paid the infinite price of His Son by sending Him through the ultimate suffering for us, if He did that, will He not surely keep you secure and carry you through, providing everything you need according to His perfect will? Yes. He goes on to say, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword. Those are gnarly forms of suffering. Nothing light or casual about them. Paul is not pulling punches with those. But goes on to say in verse 37, No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. Church, as, as Christians, our suffering will be real. And there will be great persecution. And even unjust murder of Christians and family, leaders. But in all these sufferings, and even in death, we are more than conquerors through Jesus who loves us. We must understand the weight of the victory of Christ, the weight of His overcoming our enemies. That we have overcome them in Christ. A conqueror has conquered. So his enemies are lying subdued at his feet. But Paul says here that we are more than conquerors. That means they're not just in chains. They're not just subdued at our feet. They're serving us. Better, they're tools in God's hands to serve His ultimate purpose and plans. That must be our perspective of our overcoming them. To live in something less is to live outside of what God has made clear we are in Christ. It's to live in a fear. It's to live in the temporary in a way we should not. Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, and the swords against you, as painful, as tearful as they are, they are serving you in Christ, and God is using them to work all things together for your good and for His glory. That's an understanding and a reality that you have in Christ that no one else has. And it's amazing. Praise God. The good that God works in and through our suffering is the foundation of our joy. For those who belong to Christ, those who are of God, our joy is not in our circumstances. Now, are the circumstances often filled with tears? Yes. In Christ, we have joy in our suffering, but that doesn't mean in the thick of it there's not tears. There's plenty of tears. The Bible tells us in Isaiah 53, 3, that Jesus was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 6, 10, that Paul was sorrowful, full of tears, yet always rejoicing. So, Hear me clearly. It doesn't mean we find some kind of weird religious mask we wear that looks like this. 
when we're crying behind it. No. There's real tears. There's real remorse. There's real lamenting. There's real struggle. And we join each other in that, and we press to Christ. We press to the truths of the gospel to endure. We don't have to make it up. and We don't have to bend it. Why? Because we've overcome them. That is true. God has given us the true source of lasting joy. And it's not found in our circumstances. It's not found in things going better. Christian, are you clinging lately to, I just want news that it's going to be better? Your joy is not in that. Your joy is in Him. And it's so good. And He is more than enough. Don't cheat that to try to put it on the back of something temporary that He's made clear He's using in your frailty for His purposes and His glory and your good. To those who love God and trust Christ and are called according to His purpose, Paul says here in Romans 8, verse 28, all things work for our good. Verse 30, our final glorification is secure. Verse 31, since God is for us, no one can be successful against us. Verse 32, God gave His only Son for us. He will give us everything we need. Verse 33, God is the one who justifies. No one can make a charge that sticks against us in the courtroom of heaven. Verse 34, Christ died and was raised and at the right hand of God now intercedes for us. No one can condemn us. So what is God's design in all this amazing truth? His design is for us to walk every day in the days He ordains for us in the truth that we are victorious in Christ and have overcome our enemy. That we should not waver in that. But it should change the way we live. It's essential that this is firmly under our feet. Because if the sword cuts off your head, or pierces your body, if peril sweeps away your family and leaves you alone, if nakedness or emotional scars shames you in the rape you experienced, if famine leaves you and your children bloated, or cancer leaves your parents with bones draped in skin, if unjust persecution blocks all of your professional advances, or burns your house down, if distress or calamity leaves you paraplegic or takes away your life savings, if tribulation wrings your soul till you wonder if every drop of faith will be squeezed from it, you must hold fast to the reality that you have overcome in Christ. It is only your faith in the finished work of Jesus Entrusting the perfect promises of God that provide such a firm, unshakable, God-wrought, blood-bought security that these sufferings will not overcome you. If your foundation is fixed on these truths, then you will not curse Him sinfully. You will not forsake Him. You will not reproach Him you will trust Him. You will hold fast to Him. You will be satisfied with Him when all else is taken away. When all around my soul gives way, He then is my hope and stay. As the old hymn says so well. What does this look like according to the Word? What does it look like to face these trials and pains and death with unwavering confidence and joy in our victory in Christ? Just a few. It's filled with what it looks like. It looks like Joab took up arms for the cause of God and said in 2 Samuel 10, 12, May the Lord do 
what seems good to him. Looks like Esther, who risked her life for the Jewish people in exile and said, if I perish, I perish. Esther 4.16, Daniel 3.18, it looks like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who stood unflinching before the fiery furnace, physical pain like few other, if anything, in this life. To burn in the furnace. And they said, even if God does not deliver us, be it known to you, O king, we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image. It looks like Paul, whose life seemed to be an around-the-clock risk and constant persecution and suffering, who said, I do not count my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may accomplish my course and the ministry which I have received from the Lord Jesus to testify the gospel of grace of God. Acts 20, 24. Beloved, do you live out of the reality that you are now of God and have overcome them? 1 John 4, 4. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. What a mighty truth that we have in just the first few words of verse 4. In this, John seeks to safeguard his Christian family against any kind of spiritual amnesia. I pray it be so for you too today. Don't forget. Don't lose sight. Hold fast. We need this too, Disciples Church. We need the Word of God, the truths of God, echoing regularly in our minds so that we remember who we are when we were enslaved. We remember who we were when we were enslaved in sin. And we remember all that we have become in Christ. We have overcome. Praise be to God. Look with me now at the second part of the verse. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. I love this verse. It's good for us. Thank you, God. I love you, God. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Who's who's in us? God. The one to whom we belong. The one to whom we are of. Of God. The triune God. God the Father. God the Son. God the Holy Spirit. Scripture speaks of all the ways that God is in us. We see words that say Christ is in you. Holy Spirit is in you. One might ask, is it Jesus who's in me or is it the Holy Spirit is in me? And the answer is yes. (laughs) Because it is God, right? God who is one. Each person of the Godhead who is at work in and through us. In our salvation and every day. John has already made it clear the Holy Spirit is in each of God's saved ones. 1 John 2.27 The anointing that you received from Him abides in you. The anointing is speaking of the Holy Spirit who indwells every Christian at salvation. Question 93 of the Word of Truth Catechism. What is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and when does it happen? 
The indwelling of the Holy Spirit is the action by which God takes up permanent residence in the body of an elect person at regeneration. Listen to how Paul speaks of this great truth in Romans 8, 9, chapter we were just looking at, earlier parts of it. He says, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. Church, the mighty and eternal Holy Spirit abides in all who truly are saved and trust their lives to Jesus. This is truly good news and a reality we must never overlook or disregard. We have received spiritual life by the providential presence of the work of the Holy Spirit to awaken our dead hearts, give us eyes to see and ears to hear the wondrous gospel, and to commit ourselves to our Lord Jesus the rest of our days, live for the glory of our God. Question 84 of the Word of Truth Catechism. How does a person change from spiritually dead to spiritually alive? By God's will alone, and according to His sovereign timing, the Holy Spirit causes each elect person to be born again, giving new life and saving faith in Jesus. Think of the magnitude of the super, supernatural act of God. How utterly game-changing it is for each of us to be reborn by the Spirit unto saving faith in Jesus as Lord and Savior. That's the critical teaching of Jesus to Nicodemus. If you have a lot of religion behind you, if you have a lot of self-made ideas of how you're okay with God, all of that is damning damning you must be reborn you don't live for yourself you must trust your life to jesus the spirit must awaken you you must be reborn saved by god and in this you belong to Jesus, you serve Jesus, you love Jesus, you love Jesus' word, you love Jesus' church, you love to live and give up your life for him. Christian, slow with me to really consider. You are not on your own trying to live this life the best you can to honor God. And avoid the things you shouldn't. If that's your perspective, you are completely missing it. That is moral conformity and it's damning. No, only God's Spirit at work within us, causing us to walk in His statutes, to obey His Word, to live for Him. His salvation is life with God. 1 John 4, 4, little children, you are from God and have overcome them, for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. John is driving home a point that we all too often forget or lose sight of in the midst of life's hardship, and that is God is greater. This all is God's creation. And he didn't just wind it up and set it loose. It continues by His sovereign decree. He's the one who reigns over all things. He is greater than our enemies. He's greater than Satan. Christian, don't fear Satan. Satan is defeated. Satan is... It's not on an even playing field with God. He has no power over us who are redeemed. We belong to Christ. We are secure in Christ. Is Satan at work in the world? And can he upset our circumstances and, and the happenings? Or Yeah, absolutely. But he can't get us. He can't have us. He can't control us. 
He's been defeated by Christ, and therefore we have overcome the evil one. I want you to live in that certainty. Don't give Satan a bigger seat at the table than than he has. There's not an even playing field. I've told you before, he's not arm wrestling Jesus like that famous picture that's out there. That's stupid. He's defeated by Jesus. Yet in God's perfect providence, God allows Satan to still reign in this fallen world to the degree he permits. But Satan does not reign over the redeemed, for we have overcome him in Christ. Jesus is the one who reigns over all of our lives now. Psalm 95.3, For the Lord is a great God and a great King above all gods. Psalm 145.3, Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and His greatness is unsearchable. Psalm 147.5, Great is our Lord and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. Jeremiah 32.17, Ah, sovereign Lord, You have made the heavens and the earth by Your great power and outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for You. Matthew 19.26, Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. One of my favorite places we come to a better understanding of the supremacy of Christ over all things is in Colossians chapter 1. It is, it is a highlight space whereby the supremacy of God, the supremacy of Christ is elevated. Let me give you a couple quick reminders from this passage. I pray you know it well. Colossians 1.16 For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. How supreme is God? How great is God? The utmost. Why? All of this is the result of His command. Everything that is is because of the work of God. Oh, how supreme He is. How great He is. This is why He's worthy of our worship and our faithfulness. His authority goes deeper than the physical things of creation. He's over all powers. Look at the second part of verse 16, Colossians 1.16. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him. Jesus is the ruler of all the kings on the earth. That's why John says later in Revelation 17 and 19 that he is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. He who is in you, Christian, is greater than he who is in the world. When Jesus rose from the dead, God the Father exalted him and gave him the name which is above every name. At the name of Jesus, every knee might bow. That includes all the rulers, all the kings. Jesus is alive today, reigning, presiding, ruling. God controls who becomes king and who doesn't. Daniel 2.21, God changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. So when we read the news, or we see the broadcast, or we see the happenings, we see the wickedness of wicked rulers, presidents, and, and, and leaders, governors, and kings, and monarchs, we as Christians are not undone by that. For we know and worship and serve the King of Kings who rules over it all. And He uses it. You read the Scriptures more, you will see how He uses even the wicked rulers for His purposes. And there's times where that makes no sense to us. It's because He is God and I am not. This doesn't mean that every king or ruler lives obedient and honors God in their leading. 
But Scripture shows us time and time again how God overrules the sinful acts of evil leaders and makes their sin, makes their folly, the perfect part of God's wise and perfect plan. Romans 11.33 Oh, the depths of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. Paul is so moved and so captivated that words almost don't do it justice. So he just says, Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how unscrutable his ways. Have you ever thought about the fact that Christ's supreme rule over All the nations means he claims whoever he wants to be part of his kingdom when he wants. Because he has all the authority. No one else rules that way. Jesus says in Matthew 28, 18, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. All things. Why? Because he is supreme. Because he is greater. He is before all things. Paul continues in verse 17, In him all things hold together. Talk about that verse often. The very chair you're sitting on is working by the providential great rule and command of God. Your body's working. Your brain is functioning. Your job works to chew food. All of that, the atmosphere, the oxygen holding together so I can breathe the, the regulating the temperature of the sun so we don't instantly burn up. All of that is perfectly ruled, commanded, governed by Him. Elihu says of God in Job 34, 14, and 15, if He should take back His Spirit to Himself and gather to Himself His breath, all flesh would perish together and man would return to dust. God is so much greater than he who is in the world that he is literally holding all of creation in your very lives in this moment together and ruling perfectly in the nuances of it. We must not diminish his sovereign rule over all these things. This is why any theology that makes too much of man and too little of God needs to be thrown away, repented of, For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Verse 18, He is the beginning, the firstborn of the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. What are the implications of that? Everything, in everything. Every view, every relationship, every crossroad, every moment of your life must be ruled By the supremacy of Christ. For he is greater. When this is in play rightly, then everything else that used to be primary becomes secondary. And that is a great blessing. Rightly secondary to the surpassing, all-surpassing greatness of the Lord Jesus Christ. Life is really hard when we get that out of order. When we make secondary things primary, and that which is absolutely primary, secondary. So I ask you personally, is Christ supreme in your life? 
to you what is more important than Jesus. Just look at me real quick, please. What is more important to you than Jesus? What's more supreme? Who do you submit yourself to more than Jesus? The Bible says that we can have all of our lives in submission to God. It just takes one thing to be more important to us to make us an idolater. Which side of eternity do you stand when it comes to the supremacy of Christ? Eternity divides between those who submit to Christ as Savior and Lord and those who submit to self as Savior and Lord. One has eternal life, the other remains under the wrath of God. If you are not saved today, if you have only had religion, self-made belief in who you are and how this gets done, by the words and the revelation of God, by the sovereign work of the Lord to open your eyes and unstop your ears and to give you a heart of flesh that you would see the depth of your sin and humbly confess it before Him and desperately give your life to Jesus to not only save you but to reign as the Lord of your life and be saved and be reborn and be transformed so that he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. And that's your reality. If you're saved, church, we must abide in him. We must repent of our sin ongoingly, long to serve him, know him, pray and read his word, Walk among the body of Christ accountably to stay reoriented to this truth. I just, I just want to put it to you a different way as we close. And just be really honest. Do you really believe, Christian, that he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world? Because if you do really believe that, it will change how you live. It will change how you're impacted by hardship and loss. It will change how you address life's really hard injustices and obstacles. He who is in you is greater than he who is in the world is not just a catchy, raw, raw phrase for Christians. Oh, I pray it is so much more. I pray it is a governing truth that steers your life. Christians, stop telling God how big your storm is and start telling your storm how big your God is. He who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. You are of him, and you have overcome them. Praise be to God. Pray with me. Lord, you are good. You are blessing us immensely with your truth, with rich truth in one verse that moves and changes. You changed lives. You are doing that now. And I just pray, Lord, that, that we would just humble ourselves. We would submit. We would, we would lean in. We would take hold of these things and put away the deception, put away the, the, the lies that we have believed, the the idolatry that we have clung to. (sighs) 
You have loved us well. To be clear. Jesus said it clearly in John 16, 33. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart. I have overcome the world. Do your work in us, God. And be glorified in our singing, in our testimony, in our lives lived as we move from this space. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen.